What a blessing it is to worship in the house and among the people of the Lord. Amen? Amen. It's just so very good. I just see, I see more and more people every week who are coming back, and what a blessing that is. We are in a series uh, that I've called Major Truth from the Minor Prophets, and we're going through the prophets in the order that we find them uh, in the scripture and, and learning more and more. We started with Hosea, and we learned about the unrelenting pursuit of God's love. I mean, it's just an amazing message from Hosea. If you missed it, I, I would invite you to go back and listen to it. How you can't out the grace of God. Did you know that? You can't do it. As long as you will receive, he pursues you. And just this marvelous message lived out uh, before us in the life of Hosea. Then we looked at Joel and how in, in Joel we find that the presence of the Lord is there in the midst of the most difficult times of disaster. He is there, and we don't need to doubt that. He is there, and he is bringing us through. And then he gives a prophecy of the outpouring of his spirit upon all people, uh, young and old and men and women, all different types of people. And now we're to Amos. So let's take a look at Amos. And I just have to say, I began to study this, and I, I realized I don't think I've ever known a person named Amos. Uh, it's, it's, I, don't, I couldn't think of anyone. I couldn't even think of someone that I knew. Is there anyone here that's named Amos? I'd like to meet you and shake your hand after the service. I don't know anybody named Amos. In fact, it's a name. You, you can learn these things now. It was very popular in the mid-1800s, and the popularity just plunged, and, and hardly anybody. I mean, I, I couldn't find anybody. In fact, I you can Google up and say, t find for me famous people named Amos, and, and there were eight names. I didn't know any of them. And so I, I found myself really wondering, uh, you know, how do I understand this a little bit better? Um, and so I, I do recall a couple of them. There's, of course, famous Amos cookies. Hey, all right, that's it. Because famous Amos cookies has gotten us through a lot of summer camps, I'll just tell you. Famous Amos is there for you in the middle of the night. And then, of course, you might remember a little song about a guy named Amos Moses. Do you remember that? By Jerry Reed. Uh, it came out in 1970. Okay, well, I'll just refresh your memory. All right, now, Amos Moses was a Cajun. He lived by himself in the swamp. He hunted alligator for a living. He'd just, go ahead, say it to me, knock him in the head with a stomp. Well, it fits. And here's the artwork from the album. That's, that's Amos Moses. He had one arm bit off anyway. Uh, and he's a different kind of character, wouldn't you say? Well, let me just say that the prophet Amos is a different kind of character. Uh, he describes himself this way in Amos ver uh, chapter 7. He says, I was no prophet, uh, nor a prophet's son. But I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. And so you get a picture of a whole different kind of guy. Really, he's completely different from any of the other prophets. And so that's why we want to dig in. He started out as a shepherd in a place called Tekoa. Uh, and he was an overseer of sheep, the, the word means, and, and a farmer. He oversaw the trees 
he lived in the southern kingdom, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more, refresh you on that. But he was a southerner, okay, in, in terms of that land, uh, and he, but he was preaching in the north, in the northern kingdom. What, why that call? But that's where he was. He was not educated as a priest or as a prophet, uh, and, but he was a guy with a burden on his heart, and that's what we see. So I'm going to read from Amos chapter 6. It's partway through uh, the book. There's nine chapters in the book of Amos. And we're doing this sort of bird's eye view. Uh, but as we look at it, he's at this point beginning to prophesy against the northern kingdom, the people in the north that are called Israel. So let's listen to the word of God in these eight verses. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Kalna and see. And from there go to Hamat the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stalls who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Now let's stand and pray. Father God, sometimes we hear a preacher and immediately we, we bristle and push back and, and we're not sure how to take it and we're not sure we want to hear things and, and we can sense very much um, that that was what was going on in this ancient time. But God, help us not to push this into the past, but instead hear it for our future. Help us to not distance ourselves from your word just because it was to another people, and help us to hear what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The name Amos in Hebrew means burden. I think this might actually explain why we don't know many who are named Amos. <laughs> Mommy, what, what does my name mean? Why did you, well, your name means burden, dear. Now, I'll be honest, too, I've met and known a few ladies who were in their 40th week, and they were getting ready to give birth, and they might well have been tempted to give the name burden to their child. Anybody familiar with that, okay? Um, 
it actually means to carry a burden or to be carried by God. But the thing we don't want to miss, it fits very well because Amos was a burdened man. He had a burden to bring the truth of God among uh, the people of God. Uh, he had the heavy burden of God's message really to an ungodly time and an ungodly people. He prophesied during this period of the divided kingdom. And this nation that had been one and had flourished as one had then decided, no, we think it's better if we divide. And they thought it was great because each, each uh, of these two nations, uh, Judah is the name of the one in the south and Israel is the name of the one in the north, each one of them thought, we're really doing great. We're better off. We're stronger alone. We're stronger divided. And they were not because they were headed for disaster. They were headed for a fall. Uh, Amos was a contemporary of Hosea, the first prophet that we studied. And both of them were preaching during this very affluent time, this unprecedented uh, prosperity that had gone on. They had been at peace. And, and, lots, and especially the north had just flourished and there's lots and lots of wealth. The, the wealthy were getting wealthier and wealthier during that time. But there was also idolatry. They had, they had thought, we don't really need God like that. We're going we're gonna to worship these idols. We're going to worship a golden calf. And, and then there was also, they drifted into a sort of rampant greed that went on. Uh, enough was not enough, and they wanted more and more and more. And while Hosea, during this time, preached the unrelenting love of God for his people, Amos preaches a sort of unrelenting judgment that is coming. He is a blistering uh, prophet. Uh, I mean, there's, there's not a, there are some words of comfort, but you have to wait a really long time before you get to it. He was a tough guy. So my version of the song, I would call it Amos of Tekoa, would go like this. I think I'm on the next slide. There we go. Okay, I, I did. I missed that one. Uh, it's often said that the uh, job of the prophet is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And Amos was really good at afflicting the comfortable. I don't know if you, you'll hear that more and more. That was, that was his calling very much. So here's my version of the, of the song. I'm going to do it again. Now, Amos of Tekoa was a prophet. He lived way down in the south. He went around to preach the word against the wicked. He just knocked him in the head with a stomp. <laughs> so, Mike, can we put that together for next week? We'll just, we'll need to work on it a little bit. But the stomp was the voice of the Lord. He brought the voice of the Lord. He brought the word of God. And he came uh, around knocking folks in the head with it. So let's go back a little bit. Amos came out of a simple life. He had begun as a shepherd in this town about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, uh, Tekoa. And we couldn't call him a, a, a man of the land. He was uh, a connected with the common people. And so we might even call him a people's prophet because of where he came from. He was so different from the others who were uh, more trained in theological thinking. He just, and boy, does he ever... Uh, bring the word strongly. His strategy, or at least the way it lays out, we don't know that he thought of this, or, but this is the way the Lord led him, was first to denounce the nations that surrounded Israel. And so he begins uh, early in the book by denouncing Damascus, which is Syria, Gaza, which is Philistia, which eventually is Palestine, 
and Tyre, and, which is up Lebanon, and then Edom and Ammon, which are Jordan today, and Moab. And he denounces these nations. And he was pretty popular. If you think about it, people love it when you denounce the nations. You say, uh, I'm going to tell you how terrible the Russians are. I'm going to tell you how terrible the Chinese are. I'm going to tell you how terrible the Iranians are. I'm going to, you know, and just go down through the nations. Aren't they? They're the problems in the world. And people say, yeah, yeah. And then he came a little closer to home. Now he's in the north, and he's saying, and those, those folks in the south, those folks in Judea, they've got things all messed up. They've rejected the Lord God. They haven't kept his statutes. And he's preaching against the people in the south, but he's still in the north. And they're saying, yeah, oh, yeah, those, those southerners, yeah. And then he begins to preach. He's in the north. He begins to preach about those folks in the north. He focuses on the privilege and the privileged people of Israel that were there. You see, the northern kingdom have been acting inhumanely, just like the nations. Uh, Amos goes through and, and he pinpoints the sins of each of these nations. And then he says, and you're, and you're doing the same thing, the very same thing. They were selling off needy people who owed debts for goods. I mean, today we call that human trafficking. It's a form of human trafficking, indenturing. They were selling people. You owe money? Well, we're going to sell you as a slave. Let me just tell you, God hates that. God hates that. Taking advantage of the helpless. In chapter 2, he talks about that. Oppressing the poor. That is taking advantage of those who are poor. You know, I remember uh, several years ago, we were in Guatemala on a mission trip. And I, I've shared this before because it was such a stunning moment. We were in the home of a pastor. Dirt floor, but a, but a shedded covering. And we were guests there. And they were uh, being so very kind to us and gracious to us, and, and we brought some food, and we were sharing food. And I noticed in the corner there was a, a large commercial uh, sewing machine. It was pretty, it was big, and it was old. And I said, and I asked through the translator, what, what is that for? And he explained, well, the pastor, the way he makes money is to sew. He, he sews shirts, and they'll get an order for like a 1,000 shirts from a company, an intermediary, that's going to sell those shirts in America. So you get those shirts, and it says, made in Guatemala. I'm meeting the guy who makes the shirt in Guatemala. And then it was explained to me, well, it's really good when it's good. But he said so many times, they'll get an order for 1,000 shirts, and all the fabrics brought in, and they'll sell 1,000 shirts. And then they go off, and they don't get paid. I don't know how you feel about that makes me want to think twice about the shirt that I buy so cheap somewhere that was made in Guatemala. That is sin, and it's wrong, and that's the sort of taking advantage. And there's no recourse in that nation. There's nothing to be done about it. Can't you go to court? No, there's not a court. There's no, there's no power. There's, they're helpless to do anything about this. That should make us angry, amen? Yeah. Oppressing. Men were using women immorally, and it's described in the book here. One writer uh, about, a uh, commentator, put it this way, drunk on their own economic success 
and intent to strengthen their financial position, the people lost their sense of humanity. Now, we can talk a lot about injustice, and we will in several places in our study. But inhumanity is the great focus that Amos talks about. Israel had forgotten how God values people. It's something that we must never forget. We might get upset about something happening at the border or something happening in another part of the world, but we must never forget that God values people. He created them. These are children of God. Israel had forgotten and was treating people, human beings, as a commodity, selling them, taking advantage of them. They had no love for their neighbor, and they took advantage of others and looked only to their own concerns. Well, if I can just get a little bit richer, that'll be the good thing. And they were prideful about, about all this, and they resisted the message that was being preached. Boy, they pushed back when it finally is, is focused on them. But he didn't stop there. The Lord rebuked empty religion is the best way I can put it. In chapter 5, wow, he says, and this is the Lord speaking through the prophet, this uh, prophet of the people, I hate, God says, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Why? Because it's empty. If it's empty, uh, God doesn't want it. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Wow. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen But let justice, this is the famous verse, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what I want. Says it a number of different times through the prophets. I desire justice and humility and walking closely and humbly with your God. That's a message that we need to hear and we dare not turn away from. In chapter 6, he turns his focus to what he calls those who are at ease. And and that's an interesting word. They they were living a life of ease. But more than that, um, many of the translations translate it complacent. We talked about this a few weeks ago. To be complacent in this context means you're okay with things the way they are, not not worried about, about things that might be going wrong somewhere. And he says, woe to those who are at ease, who are complacent in Zion, who feel secure uh, to whom the people come. That means they were people of influence and authority. Do you think you will be protected in the day of disaster? That's the big question. You think you're, you're under some kind of protective watch because you claim that you're the, you know, you worship the God of Israel? Woe to those who lie in beds of ivory. <laughs> I don't know what a bed of ivory was like, but apparently it's real fancy. (laughs) And stretch themselves out on their couches. Now you're hitting close to home here. (laughs) And eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. 
you, like, you like your music and you like your wine in the bowls and, and, and uh, you anoint yourself with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. What does that mean? Who, why, why is Joseph mentioned? Joseph is the one tribe that was divided into two. Ephraim, say Ephraim. Say it, say it a little better. Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so there are these two that are the prominent pieces of property in the north. And he says they've come to ruin. And because of that, judgment is coming. The north is the first to be exiled. And he makes that clear in verse 7. In 722 B.C., the north is going to be invaded. They're going to be scattered, half the people all around to the known world. And then they're going to be uh, others brought in. They're going to have a forced, uh, a terrible intermarriage that is forced upon them. And it's all going to be, the hand, the hand of God is at work in all this. It's a judgment that's coming. He says in verse 8 of, of that chapter, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Judah in the south is also going to fall and be exiled in 586 B.C. So Amos, the thing that we don't want to miss is that he speaks to one of the core issues of the prophets, and that is justice. Now, if we open a conversation about justice these days, it, it is a can of worms because there are, uh, are as many definitions of justice as there are, it seems, uh, talking heads and commentators and maybe people, right? I mean, you just all kinds of views uh, about it, the different definitions. So we ask, well, what is justice? And we have to realize pretty quickly there's a difference between criminal justice and civil justice. And economic justice could be defined in, in a lot of different ways. Social justice is talked about a lot, usually within a political or legal construct, trying to figure out, well, what does that look like? What does it mean? And we realize that for many, justice, social justice, means demanding things that belong to other people. And, and the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible calls that, actually, covetousness. It's in the Big Ten that we're not to do that. But the Bible does talk about a biblical justice. All that's different. Biblical justice flows from the heart of God. When we lose the heart of God, when we lose our connection with God, we will lose our sense of justice. Um, I read a definition. It's probably not the only one, but I thought it was pretty good. A definition of biblical justice is making individuals communities, and the cosmos whole, shalom, by upholding both goodness and impartiality. We uphold goodness, goodness of God, and impartiality in an effort to make people and communities, and, as, and in as much as we can, the Lord brings the cosmos to a whole. Biblical justice, as we find it in the Bible, is mostly about treating others fairly. And honestly, it's all through. If we can just read that and understand that, it, it will be very, very helpful. Biblical justice is mostly about hearts that are changed so that there is compassion in our world. That's what Amos was preaching about. Hearts that are changed, not necessarily trying to rearrange everything. 
Biblical justice is specifically about not taking advantage, paying fair wages, using honest measures in trade, treating other people fairly in court. How we treat people is of immense concern to God. Immense concern. We cannot set that aside. How our systems treat people is of immense concern to God. We found ourselves so torn during the last year where we see scenes that we don't know how to fix. We see a border where toddlers are dropped over a fence and we don't know quite what to do or how to fix that. It tears hopefully at all of our hearts. If it doesn't tear at our hearts, we need some more Amos. Biblical justice is rooted in our created nature, in in the fact that we are in the image of God. The Bible tells us that we are not animals. And I love animals. I got two brand new animals in my home. Trying to figure out how to handle that. (laughs) Little puppies. But, But we are not animals. Animals don't have moral reflection and moral agency. They're not able to to think about animals. The other part of animals in the animal world is that they will, if necessary, eat their own children. We don't do that. And they don't have conscience about that. Humans were created to reflect the nature and the character and the heart of God. We are created, imago dei is the Latin for it, in the image of God. And it's so vitally important that we don't lose that, that we don't miss that. God defines how justice will look uh, in Leviticus. One of the verses is Leviticus 19.15. And he says, you shall do no injustice in court. Okay, and what would that be? And he defines it. He says, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. So even-handed, not partial to the poor, there's a temptation toward that, or defer to the great. It's not about who has enough money to hire the most powerful lawyer. It's not about that. It's not about feeling sorry for someone because they are poor. It's about being, it's really about being fair in the best sense of understanding fair. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. We are to judge, especially in court. There has to be a judgment. Social justice is going to clearly have equal opportunities. And we define that all the time. And and all of this comes out of Scripture. The idea that we would dismiss Scripture from our culture is ridiculous. All of it goes bad. Yes, stupid. What's the Hebrew for stupid? I'll I'll find that somewhere. Okay. But, But it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Justice. Uh, as it's defined, social justice will have equal opportunity. A man and a woman doing the same work should receive the same opportunities and wages. That, I mean, that, that comes right out of Leviticus 19. Two people uh, of different racial or ethnic backgrounds should have the same opportunities and wages for the same work. And so we seek to apply these sorts of things. Now, justice and righteousness have to go together, hand in hand. We read the verse a few minutes ago. Uh, Amos 5.24, it's one of the ones that we brighten up because we've heard it before, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. They go hand in hand. 
they have to work together. Let me put it this way. You can't have justice without things being righteous. Amen? Righteousness has to be there for there to be justice. It has to be right. And you can't be righteous right before God without being just. So we want to hear this from the prophet. The message given uh, to Amos and through Amos goes on even further. He talks about what is the measure of righteousness and justice. It's not one of our own choosing. You don't just say, well, my measure of justice is, is this and it's different. No. In chapter 7, he says, I'll show you what it is. He has a vision. This is what the Lord, what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Do you know what a plumb line is? Okay, if you've built things, you probably do. If you don't, it's just a cord and it has a, a weight at the bottom. You use it and you hang it up to make sure you're building the wall straight. And there's no other measure. And this is very much a working man's, you know, he's saying, let me show you in your language. You're a working man. You're a man of the people. And he's got this plumb line there. God, and the Lord said, Amos, what do you see? I, I see a plumb line. I know what that is. And the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people. Now, it's me. I'm setting it. I will never again pass them by. I'm not going to look the other way. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam, that's the north, with the sword. Now, he's not going to wield the sword, but the sword is coming, and it's going to be because the Lord is behind it. Now, what is the plumb line? It's dropped in, in, in our midst. Very clearly, it is the word of God. Um, Hebrews 4.12, we've, we've hit this a number of times. Why don't we read it out loud together? Ready? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to know what's right? The Word of God. It's the only way. James says, look in it, and it's like a mirror, and you'll see if your face is dirty. And then you need to wash your face. Don't just walk away from it. And the very best plumb line that was ever dropped in our midst was when the Word became flesh to live for a while among us. Jesus is the ultimate plumb line. And so we look to Jesus, we often say, well, what would Jesus do? In Matthew 25, verse 40, he said it this way. It's a marvelous chapter. He says, whatever you did to one of the least of these, you did to me. Now, it can be translated for me or to me. Wow. We need to hear that. We, I need to hear that. I don't know. I, I start thinking, I don't think I've done anything, but I'm going to have my eyes open. I want to look and make sure that the way I treat someone that I come across, the way that I treat people in my life, that I'm not taking advantage, that I'm not ignoring suffering, that I'm, not, that I'm as concerned about reaching people and, and relieving uh, pain and suffering as I am about the things in my own life. And that's the plumb line that we need to hear. Destruction was coming upon the northern and the southern kingdom. Uh, in the book of Hosea, he foretold a regathering. We looked at that, that the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be regathered. There's a, 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 a 
point of hope that's in Hosea very early on. Amos also foretold a restoration, but only in the last five verses. Let me put it this way. Amos comes and he preaches for eight and a half chapters, blistering judgment. And then he says, oh, by the way, five verses. And there will be restoration. This is just the nature of, of Amos. In that day I will raise up the booth, the tabernacle of David that is fallen. That, that is really the temple that is fallen and repair its breaches, the, the city. And raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. And so it's a restoration of the nations that were original, the area that was originally given to Israel. So what is the major truth in this minor prophet? As I, as I was struggling with it, I, I boiled it down to four things. <laughs> this is a big, big uh, book. And so uh, these sentences are here. That One is that God can call anyone to speak for him. There's a tendency to, to have kind of a, uh, they call it a just a syndrome. Well, I'm just a student. I, I, I couldn't help in that situation. I'm just a, a homemaker. I'm just a a person who works at the space, I'm just a, whatever it is, whatever the thing is. And one of the things we want to be sure in here in, in Amos is, Amos could have said, well, I, I'm just a shepherd and I'm just a, a farmer uh, tending the sycamore figs. And God said, and it, I love it because it says, and God took me. It doesn't say he even called him. He took me. And so if he takes us, we need to not fight against that. We need to be ready and know he can use anybody. And don't look down on somebody and say, well, God couldn't be using you because you don't have education or you don't have background or anything like that. We just looked at a verse that says, in these last days, God's going to pour out his spirit on all people, young and old men and women, little boys. And, uh, you know, I've heard some amazing things in the last two weeks from young people. I'm like, wow, God is doing great and powerful stuff. God calls his people to be both just and righteous as a reflection of his image within us. God rejects empty religion. You sing all the songs you want and do all, all the stuff you want and feel real good in your heart and the Lord may come and say, that makes me sick. I despise that because you have not turned your heart toward me. Don't worship me with that kind of emptiness. I mean, the words couldn't be any stronger. I hate it when you do that, is what God says. I despise it. Wow. And though he will judge the wicked, he will also restore his people. Praise God for the last five verses. So the question that I always ask is, so what about me? What about you? Because really, uh, the prophets draw us into a conversation with God, and it's very personal. We can talk and look and say, well, those people and that people, and they shouldn't be. No, no, it's about me. It, it, it's about you. It's about that conversation. Have I grown complacent? Just, just a little too at peace with the way things are, and I'm just going to ignore these other things out there and not realize that the tag on my shirt really does make a difference. I don't know what to do about it. But sometimes it really does make a difference. Am I at ease with these things the way they are? 
And to realize that, that it's easier sometimes to just ignore these things that are in our world. What God wants is, I, I, don't, I want your heart changed so that you touch these places. It's mission week, so it's a perfect week. We have a powerful, I'm just always amazed. This is a week that touches me. Because I love summer camp, and I love the commitments that are made there. And, and I love VBS and the, and the young voices and the young hearts and the young lives. But, wow, Mission Week, I see these kids, these young men and young women as they come in from, from painting projects in the middle of the summer, and they've paid to be there, and they're all sweaty, and they're singing songs as they walk in from their team. And I go, that is Jesus. That is the kingdom, and I love that. So let's be in prayer for that. But most of all, in prayer for our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you challenge me all the time. That you, you, you cut into my heart and cut into my life, and you strip aside the things that, that I've grown comfortable with, at ease with. You pull down the things that, where, where I've just failed to look and see. And God, I pray that by the voice, by the word of your prophet, your designated prophet, who you took in your hands and gave voice to that I might hear, that we might hear. God, we're so grateful for the words of restoration that are always there, that you're always there ready to restore, always there to lift up. And we praise you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.